This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Not a fan of being surprised by hidden fees? Well, at TD Ameritrade, they charge just one straightforward price and give you everything you need to trade. No hidden fees, no surprises. Learn more at tdameritrade.com pricing. Member SIPC. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, June 6th, and we're discussing offshore drillers. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Motley Fool contributor Jason Hall via Skype. How's it going, Jason? I'm very good. I'm very good. I um, ran a 10K over this past weekend, set a personal best, came in below nine-minute miles. So I was pretty happy with pretty happy with that. Feeling good. Nice. Feeling good. For, for 42, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Nice. It was my girlfriend's birthday over the weekend. We went out to dinner, spent some, spent some time in the city, went to the new spy museum, checked those sorts of things out. It was a good time. So we had some other interesting news over the weekend. Jason, we'll just hit this off the top of the show. The SEC has changed their regulations now to allow alcohol sales in football stadiums. We both graduated from SEC schools. What has been your reaction to this huge change? So I think it's important to note that since this is primarily an investing podcast, in this case, we're referring to the Southeastern Conference. <laughs> yes. The, the dominant football conference and kind of the dominant basketball conference to a certain extent in terms of overall talent. So I, I think I'm, I think it's really interesting, right? Because, you know, most of these schools have had, you know, the ability for like the, the super wealthy donors who have their little private boxes, they can bring in their own alcohol anyway. Um, but the thing is, it's, 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 I don't. I don't think most of the schools are just gonna. They're gonna throw in taps and start having general alcohol sales. I don't think that's gonna happen. I just, you know, um, we'll see. But I don't. I don't know. It's another source of money, right? They can. They can get more money to fund their their men's diving programs with by by selling alcohol and generating extra revenue, right? Is that the is that the idea? Yeah, I guess that's the vibe. I mean, <laughs> you think of it. Uh, you know, for football, I feel like folks are gonna go to the football games no matter what, and we already have. Uh, you know, donors. I know in, in at University of Alabama, we have donors. They can you know pay a big amount of money for club seats, and they can bring their own in. But uh, you know, this this change has been talked about for a while. Uh, and, and it's kind of kind of come in place. It is interesting, you know. At, at Georgia, <laughs> you see some some of the some of the money generating uh, the moves they've made. They're going to charge folks twenty five thousand dollars for the privilege to uh, to buy purchase alcohol at these games in a place where you cannot see the field. What is your What is your thoughts on that twenty five thousand dollar cover charge for you know six or seven home games a year? So, well, that that twenty five thousand dollar isn't isn't just for the for the booze. Isn't just for <laughs> access to that specific area. You, it's it's part of getting into a specific group of donors that they have to be a part of that group of donors. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but basically it's all the money they're using to fund all of their big capital investments. Like they're building a new tennis facility. Uh, they built a new end zone uh, facility with uh, like a, a new um, new locker rooms and like a new visitors area for recruiting. Um, so there's a few people that are going to do it, but no, it's, I think it's dumb. I really do. Um, uh, there's been a lot of back, uh, backlash from both, uh, your, your regular Joes like you and me that don't just have an extra 25 grand to throw at their alma mater, um, just to get a bumper sticker for that specific little, you know, alumni group or whatever. Um, but also from, from the people that are, you know, contributing at that level saying, Hey, we're getting thrown under the bus by everybody else for this thing that we weren't even a part of that we also kind of think is dumb. So I, I don't know. It's, it, it comes across as kind of, you know, like they're pretty out of touch with, with what the alumni and the fans actually want. So, 
you know, what do you do? Yeah, we'll see how things play out. You know, it's getting that little bit of nugget that makes it feel like college football season is coming up. I think we're under 100 days until the season. Uh, fun to have a little bit of discussion. But let's now move on to our main topic for the day. And as I said off the top of the show, it's going to be offshore drillers. Uh, when it just gives you some numbers for some context on the size of this industry. About 37% of global oil production comes offshore, about 28% of global gas supplies. This is an industry that's really kind of been lost in the woods a little for the past few years since oil prices declined in 2014. Um, but it looks like there are some signs uh, things are going to tick back up. Jason, just kind of 10,000-foot view, uh, what are we seeing today in the offshore market, and how have things evolved over the past few years since oil price, dec- price declined? Yeah, so we, if we go back to 2014, uh, you know, that's oil prices were still well over $100 at the m- middle of the year. Um, and I think that was the all-time CapEx peak, right, for, uh, for, 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 for EMPs was 2014. And of course, um, oil prices started falling in the second half of the year, fell sharply through pretty much all of 2015. By 2016, early 2016, there was, you know, these, we were, the headlines were the death of oil. You know, I think uh, Brent crude was in the uh, high 20s and West Texas uh, intermediate crude. This is the big U.S. benchmark. I think it hit like $22 a, a barrel or some just really, really low number. Um, and all along that way, um, the the off, offshore spending just continued to fall and fall and fall. Be, well, because offshore is really expensive to develop, oil companies' cash flows were getting slammed because oil prices continued to fall, and they had to cut somewhere. And offshore was one of the biggest places that got cut. Um, I think I think last year um, we we still saw a continued little bit of a decline in the in the by the the major EMPs offshore, but spending overall has started has started to really has started to really recover uh, this year. Um, we're still well less than, you know, um, I think about half where we were in 2014 in terms of that offshore spending. But it is starting, it is starting to recover. And I think a, a, big, a big thing that's happened too over that time is the drillers that we're going to talk about. The industry has gone through a ton of turmoil. There's been a lot of um, um, uh, scrapping of these old uh, rigs that just weren't cost competitive at lower prices, uh, rigs that couldn't operate in the kind of environments where uh, uh, oil producers want to develop uh, resources. Um, and there's been a ton of, of, of fleets acquiring one another and, and a lot of merging, uh, merger and acquisition activity that's happened. So from a fundamentals perspective, the industry is a lot healthier than where it was. Uh, the the trajectory looks right in terms of spending does continue to increase uh, by the by the producers, uh, but if you were to look at the stock prices, you would think that this is an industry that they're just you know they're going to ask the last guy to turn off the lights on the way out the door. I mean it just it's it just seems so. It's just it's it's really ugly if you've invested in the sector at all over the past four or five years. Sure, and and this is a sector that is traditionally very cyclical. And when you have a cycle that was particularly rough uh, in, in this these past few years, when you had oil on the high end got up, you know, hundred hundred fifty dollars, you know, a barrel, and then it plummeted all the way down to the twenties. That really left a lot of producers in a situation where they were unsure about the future of oil prices. And as you mentioned, when you invest in an offshore, uh, you know, oil rig. It's going to take several years to go from your initial input of capital to getting money out on the back end. And if you don't know what oil prices are going to be on that back end, it's really tough to make that allocation decision. However, over the past several years, we've seen oil prices seemingly stabilize in this mid-50s to $60 range. Um, 
and we've seen some break-even levels. As you mentioned, we've got some new uh, investment in new rigs, really modernizing our fleets. Uh, we've seen the break-even levels for offshore come down. Whereas, you know, in 2016, we saw break-evens in the $64 a barrel range, which for a long period of time, you'd have been underwater. There's just no sense making an investment right. now. Uh, we've got some right. estimates from Rice that Energy saying that break-evens now in this mid-40s to low-40s uh, dollar a barrel range, which in this current pricing environment makes offshore, uh, you know, a profitable investment. Whereas, you know, before prices tick back up, they may not have been. Let me give some context on that, too. That early 2016 period when you're talking about where it was you know, in the 60s, you, you know, you go back a few years before that, it was in the 70s um, easily. So it, early 2016, let's say February 2016, uh, the, the average break even was $64 is, is, is what, is what the, they were saying. Again, I said it, oil was selling for in the 20s, $20 barrels. So you're looking at, you know, you spend $64 to produce something that you could sell for less than 30, right? That's how ugly things were back in 2016. Fast forward to now, oil's in the 50s. You can sell it, you know, you can produce it in the 40s uh, so you can make money, right? It's, it's a massive, massive shift in the past two and a half years, three years. Right. And, and, you know, as we've seen investment in offshore wane over time, the ability of the global oil market to replenish uh, oil supplies as they come off. So you have, you have a well that, you know, is drilled over time, the production of that well decreases. Uh, decreases over time. Well, what we've seen as investment dollars into uh, into new production have dwindled over time. We've seen the replacement rates continue to come down, which has reached us to a point where we're only really producing or replacing the uh, the barrels that come off the market at about a one for one rate uh, with the new ones that were coming onto the market. So we need new investment to create new supply uh, to continue driving the market forward, and uh, that's why we're where we're seeing this this cycle. Uh, for offshore turning around. Uh, you know, on the back half of the show, Jason, we'll talk a little bit about some companies we like specifically. Any last thoughts on this broader market for offshore, though, before we move on? Yeah, I, th- I think it's important to kind of understand the greater context of what's happened that's caused offshore to be so much slower to recover than I think a lot of investors, including myself, initially expected. And one of the big ones is shale, right? And that's you know primarily on shale, uh, uh, onshore. You think about the Permian Basin in, in Texas, the Eagleford Basin uh, in Texas, and some of the other uh, scoop stack plays. Uh, the, the bottom line is that uh, the, 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 it costs a little more to produce that oil. But if you're, if you're an oil producer and you want to get some kind of return on your cash, uh, and you know what oil is selling for today, and you know you can produce uh, shale right now at a, at, a, at a higher break-even cost, but you can literally start generating cash flow within a few weeks of, of bringing in a, a, you know, of starting drilling a, 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 a well versus an offshore project, which might take five or 10 years to come online. Even if the break-even is lower, in the environment that these guys have dealt with over the past three years, since oil bottomed in the twenties and has you know recovered, uh, but been quite volatile, you know it's a pretty easy decision. If I'm if I'm a, a, a capital allocator at a, at a at an oil producer, I'm going to focus on shale right now because the predictability of generating cash returns is 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 really really powerful. Now I think one of the things that's changing is the bigger producers, some of the the you see you've got the national oil. Uh, companies, you know, you've got the Saudis who actually have a pretty large amount of offshore oil. You have some of the uh, African com- uh, countries that have a lot of off- African countries that have a lot of offshore oil. They have much larger scale of resources, and they can plan long term because their cash flows over time are a little more predictable. 
So I think that's one of the things that's going to drive offshore in terms of like thinking about the greater context is that because that oil is still so important, while shale has been kind of the swing, I think the offshore plays because of the predictability of their long-term cash flows is going to, that's why we're going to continue to see that upswing in, in investment in offshore. Yeah. Last thing on shale too, it's it, the decline rate on shale is much more significant once you, so you can get that, that investment out uh, of the well much quicker, but it will pay you dividends over a much shorter period of time. And so this shale, this shale kind of movement of continually, continually drilling more wells in, inputting more capital can work to a point, but as interest rates move up or as the pricing environment maybe doesn't cooperate, that can be a cycle that, that is difficult uh, to continue over time, whereas that long tail of offshore pr- provides a little bit more stability and sustainability over a long period of time. Obviously, both of these, these methods are going to play their roles in the market, but there's no silver bullet uh, that, 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 you know, that, can, that can fix all the problems. Uh, yeah, that's kind of the point. Yep. All right. On the back half of the show, we'll talk about some of the, the biggest and most interesting offshore players today. But first, this episode of Industry Focused is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. When it comes to investing education, one size doesn't fit all because everyone is different. Whether you're just starting out or an elite trader, TD Ameritrade's education gives you what you need to learn on your own terms. Choose from articles, videos, webcasts, and in-person events. You'll even have access to education coaches. Everything you need to take your knowledge to the next level. Start today at tdameritrade.com slash education. Member SIPC. Okay, Jason, now let's talk about uh, some of these offshore drillers and what's going on with their businesses. First, let's talk about TransOcean. That's ticker RIG. RIG, really easy to remember. Uh, TransOcean, over the past several years, has really been repositioning and modernizing its fleet, particularly targeting these uh, harsh, ultra-deep water environments uh, for offshore drilling. What can you tell us about TransOcean, Jason? Yeah, I think I think TransOcean is really impressive to look at in terms of where the company was at the peak and and how it's managed its way through the downturn. Uh, you know, the the uh, if if we go back to the Deepwater Horizon event, TransOcean was the operator of of uh, the drilling vessel on that event, and you know that happened you know a decade or so ago. But it, it, the point is that the company you know managed through that crisis. Things started looking better, and then the next thing you know, you're dealing with 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 the oil cra- the you know the oil crash uh, in, in 14. And when that happened, the company had a ton of, of, uh, older, older vessels had a lot of debt, but it also had a pretty decent cash balance. Uh, the company was really quick to, to cut its dividend back then and start preserving cash and management did a really good job of scrapping older vessels quickly, uh, and continued to scrap more and more vessels over the past few years. Uh, but at the same time, the company did a really, really good job of, of uh, divesting assets, like I think it's all board, it's all board drilling, its entire jackup fleet. That's a pretty recent thing that happened, uh, and then it's made a couple of really big uh, acquisitions to acquire more harsh environment, uh, ultra deep water vessels that are that are the vessels that are going to be in demand, uh, you know, over the next decade uh, or two decades, because that's where the biggest offshore plays that are going to need to be developed are. Um, so I think it's really, to me, it's the most impressive company coming through the downturn in terms of repositioning its fleet, managing its balance sheet. The debt, its debt came down. It's come up a little bit after a couple of the recent acquisitions, uh, but it's still a very manageable debt load compared to the value of the assets that it owns, uh, its, its drilling vessels. Uh, it had, the company has a ton of deep connections across the industry in some of the hottest plays with some of the biggest producers. So th- those are things that really play to its advantage in terms of being able to leverage that fleet 
and continue generating positive cash flows, you know, as as the recovery continues. Sure, and you know, if we look out into the future, uh, Transocean has the best backlog in its industry. I believe it's twelve point one billion dollars. They call that out as being four times its next largest competitor. Uh, we've talked mm-hmm. about how they've modernized the fleet to really put uh, their assets in a position where they'll be in demand going into the future. When you see that backlog, is that just evidence that that thesis has really played out for the company and set themselves up going forward with lots of contracts available? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, you have to be a little bit careful with the backlog uh, because you, you need to understand what the backlog is. Uh, what does it mean? Um, because you know, one one backlog that you know at this size, it's 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 a good number, but you really want to understand what it means in terms of like the the day rates that it's able to get from its vessels, and what is in other words, what is that backlog going to generate in terms of free cash flow, right? So that's 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 an important thing to understand about it, and I think for for the most part, this is a company that has done a really good job with that. Uh, it's not signing long term contracts at at stupid cheap rates. Um, so there's a there are a good a good number of its its lower day rate contracts are shorter term. Therefore, you know a couple of a couple of wells, or maybe they're for a year or less, or in some cases maybe for a couple of years. So what that what that means is that management has done a really good job of being disciplined, generating cash flows to cover operating expense as much as it can, but also not handcuff it in this current environment to not be able to participate as rates increase. As as we start seeing some tightening uh, in the in the global fleet of drilling vessels, so that it can really leverage uh, the the rates as they go up. So I think I think in general it's it's done a good job with its with its backlog being it's a big number, but it's also a big number that's not restrictive in terms of what it could generate in terms of profitable day rates going forward. Right, and if you look at this backlog, you know it, it appears as though you know the company has legitimate prospects going forward. People are are contracting its services. However, look at the pricing for the company. It's trading at thirty four percent of its tangible book value. Historically, it's traded, you know, maybe about uh, maybe seven or eight percent above that that tangible book value. So when you look at what the market is pricing this company, that you know it's, it's worth less than even the assets that it, that it carries on its books. Uh, is the market too negative uh, on Transocean and you know maybe on the industry more broadly as well? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but you have to be a little bit careful with the with the book value metric. It's one that I've I've actually used a lot as kind of a baseline uh, for for drillers over the past few years. Um, and so here's why you have to be careful with it. Number one. Um, even a fleet like Transocean's, there, there's still going to be some scrapping activity going on. So if it carries a rig on its on its balance sheet for two hundred million dollars, but that rig really doesn't that 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 rig might not necessarily have any economic value if it's 15, 20, 22, 23 years old. When it if it's sitting in a in a in a in a, in a shipyard somewhere in some kind of an idle status. The company may be better off instead of paying to maintain it and keep it keep it idle. Just go ahead and scrap it, eliminate its operating costs, and if it does that, it has to write off that two hundred million dollars in value that it's carrying, and that is a ping off the book value. So part of what you're seeing is that that thirty two percent of book value, roughly that it price it's priced at right now, is because there's the market does expect that there's going to be some continued write down of those assets. Um, frankly, I think Transocean's book value um, realistically probably should be double uh, the the current multiple, uh, maybe even higher. Um, you know, I mean, one times book value is really not 
too much to ask for. Uh, but I mean, you go back to the, again, 2014, when oil prices started to fall, these book, you know, these book values fell sharply in the past half decade. They've all of the offshore drillers have looked really cheap by that metric. Now, if you look at cash flows, it's kind of a different story. Uh, the, the, uh, Transocean looks a little bit expensive based on based on you know its price to cash from operations, which is kind of a good metric for cash profits, kind of like a good proxy for that. Uh, but that's partly because of some timing things. Uh, I just acquired Ocean Rig, uh, you know, late last year. Uh, a lot of the vessels that are acquired from Ocean Rig are not were not under contract, which made it really a prime opportunity to, to buy those vessels. But its cash flows have taken a bit of a hit the past you know quarter or so because of that, and that could continue. Uh, so you kind of what I'm what I'm watching with with Transocean right now is I want to see how quickly they can integrate that fleet, drive out any costs that they can, and then start putting those vessels back to work so they're generating cash flows. I think it could take some time to do that. Uh, so I think on balance, uh, the risk reward. I think you have to be willing to look. If you buy shares right now, you have to be willing to sit on them, sit on your hands for at least three years, two or three years to really let the market continue to turn um, and to continue to improve before you're necessarily going to see those book values start to really recover. But I think there's a tremendous amount of upside in the valuations uh, that, that Transocean trades at today. Sure. And last thing before we move on to, to other companies, you know, when I I've looked at several of these as, as we prepared for this episode. Uh, you look at Transocean's fleet, their exposure to the, these deep water in, in demand industries. Would you say of the companies we're going to look at today that Transocean is probably best in class when it comes to offshore drillers? If you need to buy something in this space, this this would be at the very top of the list. Yeah, I think so. I think it's this is definitely the one that's uh, that, and you know, when you're talking about equities, you know, there's there's always a risk of permanent capital loss of, of some of some level. But you know, this is a company with uh, close to two billion dollars in cash. It doesn't have any any near term debt maturities that really put it at, at any risk, uh, because this is a very capital intensive industry. These companies always almost always carry a significant amount of debt, so its ability to manage that debt is important. Uh, but between its cash, its cash, uh, its general cash. Uh, uh, Liquidity, access to to tap some revolving credit. It has tons of capital available to it, um, and it should swing back to positive cash flow. I would imagine here sometime in the next couple of quarters. Uh, so I think this is definitely the one that has the the least amount of risk and a pretty decent amount of of, of upside from here. Yeah, for sure. Sure. Uh, so so moving on, uh, we're going to talk about Ensco Rowan ticker ESV. When you look at their fleet, it, it differs somewhat uh, from what you're looking at from Transocean. They're much more tied to the jack-up uh, type rig uh, than Transocean is, more focused on the deep water. Can you talk about, when you, when you look at those differences in fleets, what that means from the company from an operational point of view and, and what they may be exposed to that Transocean is not? Yeah, so it's it's an interesting story with Insco Rowan. So if you go, if you go back to, to 2017, um, Insco and Atwood Oceanics merged, right? So Insco was a little had a little bit stronger financial profile. It merged with Atwood Oceanics. Atwood had a great uh, fleet, small fleet of really high spec, primarily floaters. So that's semi-submersible and floating drill ships. I didn't have a ton of backlogs. So anyway, those two companies merged. There was a lot of financial strength that came out of it. Um, but again, the 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 offshore market was just really, really slow to bounce back. So the decision was made to merge with Rowan um, just very recently. This closed, um, actually it closed after the first, I think it closed in April. 
and Rowan's strength is jackups. So that's where this 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 big fleet of jackups comes with. Is Rowan has a, a very large fleet of those, has a really solid backlog, uh, and that's where that joint venture with uh, Saudi Aramco comes into play. And so it's a really interesting now hybrid because you get Rowan's strength on the jackup side and this massive customer with the joint venture with Aramco, and then. From the Insco legacy side, it actually still has a pretty a pretty focused fleet of um, floaters, uh, really especially semi-submersibles uh, that can operate in harsh environments. And the expectation is that the harsh environment semi-submersibles is going to be one of the stronger day rate growth kind of market tightening high demand segments of the offshore market over the next five years. So I think it's a combination of a of, of a, a pretty predictable amount of cash flow that it should get from from the Rowan side of the business that are acquired, and then opportunity to really grow its cash flows uh, from the and the harsh kind of the harsh environment uh, drilling and production that's, that should be really starting to grow over the next four or five years. It's another company that's got a really good a really good liquidity situation. Um, they just they just released a, a presentation that kind of broke down some of their pro forma information. Because the financials that the companies both reported for Q1, it was before the, the merger, so they were separate financials. Uh, but it's got about a billion and a half dollars in cash and short-term investments, which is really strong. Uh, again, doesn't have any real near-term maturities in terms of its debt. So over the next you know, four or five years, its, ca- its capital situation should remain pretty good. Uh, it's much smaller than Transocean, uh, but again, it doesn't have anywhere near the backlog. Um, and a big part of that is because those jackup vessels just don't get the kind of day rates that you do from the floaters that are such a big part of Transocean's um, backlog. But again, I, I really like it in terms of a little bit smaller player, uh, really good opportunity for upside. Um, it, the, the book values a little bit, you know, if you, like if you look at a lot of the, the book, book values in different, you know, screeners that you might use out there, you see it, you know, 20 to 25% book value. I don't know how accurate that is. And until we see consolidated financials, it's it's probably trading a little bit closer to the same kind of valuation that you're seeing from Transocean. Uh, but I also, I like, I like Insco a lot. I've actually bought shares somewhat recently uh, of NRIG and uh, Insco both. Okay. Yeah. So, are you more bullish then on the on the ultra deep water uh, harsh harsher rigs than you are on, on the jackups? And does that exposure to jackups maybe make Insco a little bit less attractive, or is that presence with a Ramco really make it uh, a special case there that they have such that such a powerful client with them? Uh, you know, buying up their their supply. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a it's a good situation. I think that because in in, in general. Um, a, a, a heavy jackup fleet isn't necessarily the best situation to be in, but yeah, that the Aramco relationship, that joint venture, um, is is really good. And the, these are a lot of its jackups are newer, and it has a program to buy a lot more newer jackups that are going to drive down those costs. And you know, you can buy a jackup for I don't know sixty, eighty million dollars. Uh, you want to buy a, a, a semi-submersible, you're going to spend you know, triple that, mm-hmm. you know, easily. You buy a, a, a drill ship, you can spend $500 million. So these are, these are very, ex- those, those vessels are very, very expensive. Takes a lot of capital, takes a lot of debt, 
debt means leverage, you know, interest expense, all that kind of stuff. And, and the market's going to start recovering. So kind of, I guess the best way to describe it is I like the jack up fleet because of that relationship, because it is a predictable cash flow source that should continue to pay off. But you also have some upside because it does have a nice smaller fleet of high spec vessels in the area that I think we're going to see a lot of demand growth and is probably the most susceptible to tightening in demand, which is good for day rates, which is good for profits for a company like Ensco Rowan. Awesome. Going to be a company to continue to follow as they absorb this acquisition, come together, and you can see kind of how the financials of the combined company shake out. Um, last company we're going to talk about today is Seadrill. They also have had, I guess you could call it a transaction. Uh, uh, <laughs> they, uh, they emerged from bankruptcy uh, in July of last year. So equity holders that were holding prior to that point were essentially wiped out, lost 98%. Uh, of the equity value. However, since they've emerged, what are we seeing uh, from Seadrill, Jason? Is there any signs that there's some light at the end of the tunnel after they've emerged from bankruptcy? So, yeah, it's, it's uh, in previous shows, myself and Tyler Crow have spoke with you about our, this, that we, there's a lot of emotion <laughs> that we still have with Seadrill. I was fortunate that I sold a pretty substantial, substantial amount of my investment in the company uh, about three years ago. So, uh, but, but I did hold some and, you know, it's, I've lost 98% of the, of its, of its value. Um, I sold right before the, uh, the, the, the bankruptcy was official when it was, you know, pennies on the dollar, uh, and just kind of wa- washed my hands and walked away and decided I just wanted to sit back and watch. And essentially what you have is you have a company with a great fleet, has a fantastic fleet of, of, I think it's all floating vessels. Uh, I don't know if there's any that are more than 10 years old. So it's a high specification fleet. Uh, it has a smaller backlog um, and it doesn't have a ton of depth that it really has to worry about uh, in terms of near-term maturities. Um, it's working through some really high interest uh, debt that it's trying to get off of its balance sheet and get it and, 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 and repurchase. But it's just, it, it's, it's really struggled to generate cash flows that I think um, investors should be looking for right now. It's 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 burned through a ton of operating cash uh, since emerging from bankruptcy. You know, I think the the year ago quarter, I think it burned 180 million dollars of cash flow. Uh, it did generate positive cash flow um, at the end of at the end of uh, at the end of 2018, 33 million dollars in positive cash flow. So that's a good sign. Uh, but frankly. You know, you you had uh, a company come out of bankruptcy, and on the conference call, this last conference call, one of the executives was talking about potentially selling off assets, um, which leads me to believe that this that the that the company did not really do a very good job of emerging from bankruptcy healthy and whole. Yep. So I'm I'm just it's it's one that I continue to watch because the potential of its fleet seems to be pretty good, but I just I'm not, I'm not convinced. Um, the, the company's where it needs to be. I, I think I want to see more recovery in the offshore market um, before before I would really be willing to give them a single penny of my money at this point. Yeah, one, one thing I, I saw, I was reading through their most recent earnings conference call, and I saw this line from the CEO, it kind of gets your question on it. Uh, he, he said that they're fo- so our focus is on backlog quanti- quality over backlog quantity, which means the moment we're saying no to as much work as we're saying yes to, what are your thoughts on that, given a, a company that uh, is showing some problems when it comes to 
keeping you know their liquidity up if they have to sell off some assets they you know they're having some cash issues what are your thoughts on them kind of turning away business that they could have under these circumstances yeah no i think i think in in general uh, conceptually that's 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 probably the 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 right general move in this market because one of the things that has happened that as you've started to see day rates improve is we had to go through a ton of consolidation we had to see a bunch of guys go out of business um because day rates had gotten stupid cheap because people were just saying yes to anything to generate any cash flows that they could. Um, and the, the, the balance of, of leverage shifted completely to the side of the producers. So there does need to be some, some discipline where, you know, taking a, taking a day rate and, and what, and what, uh, that was, this is Carl Troll, right? The CEO you're talking uh, about? D- Dibowitz, Anton. Uh, oh, Anton Dibowitz. Okay, the CFO. Um, I believe he's actually leaving the company too. But the 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 thing that that's that's important is the contracts are saying no to is uh, when a producer throws out a three year contract that's you know cash flow break even for a rig, for example. Um, that's if, if 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 I'm in a financial situation as a as a as a as a driller, an offshore driller where I can say no to that contract, I absolutely would say no to it because, you know, a year from now, two years from now, there's a good chance that day rates are going to be 25 percent higher for that same vessel. So by saying no, you have the potential to help continue to push the, the the tightening of the supply in that market to push day rates up. And, and it's it's a little bit of short-term pain um, that should generate long-term gain overall for the industry. Um, I just, I w- when it comes to seed drill, I'm just not convinced that they're, 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 they're on balance that they're really leveraging their assets in the best way. So from a, from an industry perspective, I love that they're saying that. Again, I'm, I'm just not sure how much truth to really leveraging their assets in the best way is going on there. Yeah, something to continue to follow. Again, a company that's less than a year out from bankruptcy is still trying to find its way uh, as a parent by you know, thinking about continuing to sell some more assets. Uh, Jason, before we go away, just for folks who want to get involved and maybe, maybe buy one or two of these companies and, and continue to track uh, the offshore drilling industry over time. What are the metrics folks should really be paying attention to, whether it's an individual company metric or a broad industry metric, as they they follow this investment over time? Yeah, so there's a couple of metrics that the that the the uh, companies will talk about um, that are important. So one is the utilization rate, and that is the percentage of available revenue-producing days for their entire fleet. And then those vessels are actually, in other words, the percentage that those that their vessels are actually working. So there's another one that they use. It's called economic utilization. Now the difference is really important because the utilization rates for these guys are going to be anywhere from the from the 50 mid 50s to the low 70 percent. The higher that number is, the better because it means they're generating more cash. So the economic utilization is a very different animal because that is the percentage of working available days that that vessels that are actually under a contract are working. Now, it's an important metric because it kind of tells you, it's like a cash flow efficiency metric, how much are they wringing out of every vessel that's actually under a contract, but it doesn't include the vessels that they don't have under contract. So it's really important that you understand that both their actual utilization rate for the entire fleet and their economic utilization rate, right? So that's important to know. Um, You also want to look at... uh, 
their the, the two metrics from their balance sheet. You want to understand what is their available liquidity from a combination of cash and short-term investments that they can tap essentially immediately. Um, any uh, debt instruments they have access to, like a revolving credit that they might be able to tap uh, for opportunistic acquisitions or anything that they might be able to use it for like that. And also on the backside of the balance sheet, looking at their, at, their, at their liabilities, understanding not just how much debt they have, but any near-term um, maturities that they're going to have to deal with, that they're going to have to come up with the capital to pay off, or that they're going to have to figure out how to refinance, um, which can be a little bit harder right now. Um, now, again, on the operating side, I think an important one to look at is operating cash flow. If you think about GAAP, generally acceptable accounting uh, practices, uh, net income, earnings, uh, there's, there can be a ton of non-cash stuff in there, especially with all of the acquisitions and mergers and fleet scrapping and all of the things that are happening. A lot of those things are non-cash. So the gap net income numbers aren't necessarily a great way to understand what's going on on the profitability side. Cash from operations is a really good proxy for cash profits. So look at the trends. You know, don't, don't make a decision based on what happened last quarter or what you're expecting next quarter, but think about the trends over the long term. And those are probably the metrics that I would focus on the most in terms of identifying the quality of the business. And then in terms of valuation, think about price to free cash flow or price to cash from operations um, over a trailing 12-month period to give you some idea and then balance that out with the price to tangible book value and kind of split the difference and kind of somewhere in the middle based on the historical averages is going to give you some idea of, of, of the trajectory in terms of are you getting a decent valuation or not. I think that's basically kind of, kind of where I am right now. Yeah, I think uh, great advice for our listeners. Uh, last thing I'll say is just remember uh, this industry, like a lot of the ones we talk about on this show, is cyclical over time. So like Jason said, one quarter or even a couple of quarters shouldn't determine your investment decision. Just be aware of where you are in the cycle. Right now, it appears we're reaching a cyclical trough and starting to turn back up. So now is a good time to you know sniff around and kind of kick the tires on some of these companies. And uh, we hope this has been a good introduction to that for investors who want to dive deeper. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Jason, and I look forward to having you on again soon. Cheers. Thanks so much. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Jason Hall, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. 